And everybody said, amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Aaron and choir orchestra for leading us in worship today. You know that our theme for 2021 is a journey of faith, and we are spending the entire year exploring what it means to be on this journey of faith. This is our 150th anniversary year as a church, and it has been a faith-filled journey. And our theme for the month of August is a faith-filled church. So we have been exploring that on Sunday mornings, as Kurt just mentioned a moment ago, on um, this past week, each evening, we gathered for our summer Bible study, and we explored the book of Acts, and we had this conversation about a faith-filled church. Here is what we've learned so far on Sunday mornings. If you had to answer the question, well, what is a faith-filled church? First of all, as we've mentioned already, it's a church that knows what time it really is. It's a church that understands that Jesus has established his kingdom on this earth that even though we're still in this present evil age, the age to come has already been established. And we as believers are now living into the age to come while we still provide ministry and deal with the reality of this present age. We also know that a faith-filled church understands God's empowering and equipping presence, that God sent his spirit at Pentecost and he has empowered the church and he's equipped believers to live the lives that he has called us to live. And then we also learned last Sunday that a faith-filled church is devoted. Faith-filled church has taken the time to invest itself in the right things. As we mentioned last Sunday, it's one thing to be devoted but it's also possible to be devoted to the wrong things. And you can cause quite a bit of damage if you're devoted to the wrong things. So what I wanna do this morning is set the context for what we're going to look at today. So to do that, I want you to think about this with me. You know, Will Rogers, now in the next service, a bunch of folks will get their phones out and have to Google who that is. So, but Will Rogers said one time that the government taxes us to build better roads and Baptists wear them out going to meetings. Well, have y'all ever been to a meeting at church? How many meetings do you think you've been to at church? Well, let me just tell you, Um, I was ordained in Birmingham, Alabama, and that was a very special meeting for me. I went to meet downstairs in the fellowship hall with the brotherhood. And they were deacons in the church, and they were the ones who oversaw ordination. It was one of the more important meetings at church in my life. Now, throughout Christian history, there have been some great meetings. AD 325, Constantine convened a meeting uh, in Nicaea and brought church leaders together. Can you imagine um, the meeting that took place on November the 1st in 1517 after the pastor of the church there uh, in Germany had nailed to the front door of the church his 95 statements, his 95 Um, uh, beliefs, if you will, or theses uh, about what was taking place 
among the, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, primarily the sale of indulgences. And so Martin Luther, I'm sure, had a meeting with the leaders of his church. There have been some incredible church meetings, and I've been to one or two of them. I remember one of the most important, significant church meetings in, in my life took place right here uh, in July of 2001. We had a, a Sunday evening meeting where we asked questions and let me share answers with y'all. And that night, this church voted to extend its call to ask me to come and, and be your pastor some 20 years ago. It was a very significant meeting. I've also been to some less than meetings. Have you? I remember when I was in seminary, we were a member of a church and we went to a business meeting and we had been praying that somehow God would give us an opportunity to penetrate the community and, and we would be able to have an impact, uh, particularly on the future of our community. And we had a meeting one night in the fellowship hall because the bluebirds had requested to meet at our church on Saturday mornings. It's a little group of girls um, and they were from the community and they wanted to meet in our fellowship hall. Well, we had just redone the floors in our fellowship hall. And so we had this meeting about, should we do this? What's it going to be like? What kind of shoes will they be wearing? Will they be tromping here, there, and yonder? Which restrooms were they going to use? The people who actually had their name on the fellowship hall were in the meeting and someone finally stood up and, I, and said, before we make this decision, since their name is on the fellowship hall, we need to ask them what they think about these little children from the community coming from who knows where, traipsing all over our church. And so we voted to not allow them to come, but to do further investigation. <clears throat> um, so yeah, I've been to some meetings. I dare say the meeting that takes place here in Acts 15 is the meeting of all meetings in the history of Christianity. Now that's a bold statement, isn't it? <clears throat> but here's what I would say. Had this meeting turned out differently, probably none of those other meetings would have ever happened because I'm not sure there would have been a need for them. That's how crucial this meeting is. So I want us to pay attention this morning to the text. I, I don't mind you paying attention to me, but I, I want us to pay attention to this text in particular in Acts 15, because here's what's happened. Simon Peter, do you remember? <clears throat> we don't know everything that this means. When Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church. I remember that we talked about it a few uh, nights ago. You know, I believe the church is built upon Jesus himself, but there's a lot of interpretations about it. But he did say to Peter, I'm gonna give you what? The keys, you remember that? The keys of the kingdom and keys unlock doors. And so there's this sense in which the church, maybe Peter, had to open these doors, if you will. So in Acts 10, Peter gets this incredible vision from God and he understands God telling him in this vision that no one is unclean. Y'all remember that story? And so he gets the, the message to go and visit Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And so Peter goes and Cornelius and his household receive the gospel. And so in Acts 11, Peter goes to Jerusalem because the Jerusalem church has heard 
that a Gentile family, that not only has Peter gone to their home, he's had dinner with them. He's, he's gone in and eaten with Gentiles. And so Peter explains exactly what happened. He says, yes, I went in. And he said, but here's what happened. He tells them the story of how the gospel was proclaimed to them by him. They received it. He saw the evidence of the Spirit. And the Bible says that the church at Jerusalem rejoiced when they heard this news, that even a Gentile had received the message about the Messiah. Then the very next verse in Acts 11, verse 19, those that were scattered by the persecution ended up in Antioch. And some of them in Antioch decided to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. Well, the church at Jerusalem heard about that. So they sent Barnabas. Barnabas got to Antioch and the Bible says he looked, he saw what was, was happening and he was glad and he rejoiced. He said, obviously God is at work here. He went and got Saul of Tarsus and brought him to the church at Antioch. Then in Acts 13, the church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out as missionaries and, uh, and they, they finally eventually turned their hearts and their faces toward the Gentiles. They come back to the church at Antioch in Acts 14, verse 27, right before Acts 15, and the church rejoices because they report how God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So it seemed like the gospel was gaining footing now across the ancient world. But here was the challenge. There were, there were folks in the church primarily at Jerusalem who were Jewish in their ethnicity, they were Jewish in their religious convictions, and they had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but now it appeared to them that this thing was just getting out of hand. Because now all of a sudden, Gentiles were starting to become Christians without becoming Jews first. Because some of these Jewish leaders saw Christianity as just a reform movement within Judaism. And it was okay if Gentiles joined, but they had to really join. I mean, they had to be circumcised if they were males, they had to become proselytes, and they had to become full members of the Jewish family, if you will, religiously, and then they could be a part of this reform movement. Well, so that was a, a challenge. So finally, you come to Acts 15, and Luke says, so here's what happened. Some people came down from Judea to Antioch to teach the believers there at Antioch and basically to say to them a very strong word. If you look at verse 1 of Acts 15, they said, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, that is a strong theological statement. So basically, they were telling all the Gentile believers in Antioch and across the missionary efforts of Paul and Barnabas that none of them could be saved unless you become like us. So the church at Antioch said, no. Paul and Barnabas said, no, it's not right. So we're going to go to Jerusalem. They elected Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem to have a meeting with the elders in Jerusalem and the apostles, okay? So here's what's at stake. What's at stake is the nature of the gospel. What is the gospel? 
And also what's at stake is the place of the church. So let me just read to you, um, just, to, just to set it in context, um, John Stott has written this wonderful commentary on the book of Acts. And here's what he says is at stake. He says, the issue can be clarified by a series of questions. Is the sinner saved by the sheer grace of God in and through Christ crucified when he or she simply believes, that is, flees to Jesus for refuge? Has Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection done everything necessary for salvation? Or are we saved partly through the grace of Christ and partly through our own good works and religious performance? Is justification sola fide, by faith alone, or through a mixture of faith and works, grace and law, Jesus and Moses? Are Gentile believers a sect of Judaism or authentic members of a multinational family? It was not some Jewish cultural practices which were at stake, but the truth of the gospel and the future of the church. And I don't think Stott overstates the case. Because in Jerusalem, you've got the apostles and you have the elders. And the leader of the elders is no less than James, the brother of Jesus himself. So what is going to be the answer? How can a person be saved? What is the nature of the church? What is the actual message, if you will, of the gospel? So that's what's happening when this meeting takes place, okay? Are y'all with me? Pretty serious meeting. I would say it's the meeting of all meetings. So let's pick up the story. So verse five, here's what happens. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. This is after they heard a report from uh, Paul and Barnabas. And they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, he represents the apostles, okay? He says, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul. Now here are some missionaries, and of course Paul is viewed as an apostle as well. Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Now here is the representative of the elders. He is the leader of the church at Jerusalem, and he is the brother of Jesus. Brothers, he said, listen to me, Simon, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his own name from among the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. 
that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat strangled, meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. What an interesting meeting, and I'm grateful to the Lord for it. So, the, the gospel, the gospel is at the very center, if you will, of the church. So let's talk about that. So this group of leaders in this first huge Christian meeting, council, if you will, what did they decide? Well, here was the answer. The gospel, it turns out, is actually the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, period. There is no but or and when it comes to the essence of our theological understanding of the gospel. Peter gets it right in verse 11. Peter says, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. Now, Paul, I think, you know, there's a lot of debate about when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. Some people think he wrote it before the council, which I, I agree with that. I used to didn't think that, but I agree with that now. And here's what Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 15. Paul says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That's Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Paul will tell many years later, after some 30 years of missionary experience, he's in jail in Rome and he writes the church at Ephesus and he says in Ephesians 2, verses eight and nine, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, not as the result of works, lest any man should boast. So the point is, the decision, the question about the nature of the gospel is what they're wrestling with. And what they're trying to figure out is, so what is the message of the gospel? What does it mean to be saved? How do we understand it? Do you have to do anything else? Do you have to step inside Judaism? Or can anyone, anywhere, at any time, put their faith in Christ and believe in his message and be saved? And the answer was, that is really the gospel. And so to this day now, here's what we believe. We believe the gospel is actually this story about Jesus. It is God's redemptive story. It means that God so loved this world that he chose not to allow us to remain in our sinfulness and our rebellion and in our brokenness, but he chose to act in love toward us because John says he, he loved us so much. Remember first, I mean, John three sixteen says, for God so loved, he loved us so much. He wasn't gonna leave us to our own devices. And so the answer is he chose to do something about our sin 
because when we sin, we're separated from God and there's nothing we can do about it and we're all sinners and we've all fallen short of God's glory and we need God to do something about it because we can't overcome our sinfulness. We can't outwork our sinfulness because all of our works are tainted because everything we do, as good as we might think they are, are tainted by our sinful hands. And so the only answer is for our sin to be paid for, to be atoned for, and that's why God sent Jesus. And so Jesus died on the cross. He paid the debt of our sin. He was resurrected from the dead. He was ascended to the Father, and he now extends to us freely the offer of salvation that comes through the very grace of God when we put our faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the very heart of what we believe. It is the gospel plus nothing else. So there are no good works we can perform. There's no way we can overcome our sinfulness. There's no way we can outwork our sin because we are broken, fallen creatures. But praise God, we don't have to because the grace of God is sufficient and it's through faith in Jesus that we now can be redeemed and saved. So the gospel, that is now, it's the message of God that is actually central to the people of God. Just think about who we are today. I, I love what happens in this, in this text. You know, as, as, the, as the story goes, Peter and, and uh, Paul, they give their testimony, but I want you to look at what James does. James does something very different than Peter and Paul in this meeting. And it really has to do with his perspective. James has not been out there ministering to Gentiles. He lives in Jerusalem. So he has been dealing with some very different kinds of dynamics. James is very tied to the Hebrew scripture, which stands to reason. He's pastoring the church in Jerusalem. He needs to know the Hebrew scripture. So I want you to look at what James does. James says, um, look at him in verse 14. He says, now Simon has described this experience to us. And notice what he says in verse 14, how God intervened, and here's, here's where we have to be paying attention because these words are very important because these words meant something to these Jewish believers. The word people is the Greek word laos. We get our English word laity from that word. But it was a particular word for the Jews. It was a technical word for the Jews. It only applied to them. They were the only people who were the laos of God. They would have never referred to Gentiles that way, at least in the first century. And so here's what James says. God decided to choose to elect a laos for his name. Laos for his name, that is a reference to Israel. That is the way Israel was referred to in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And basically what James is saying is, actually God has chosen for his name a people from the Gentiles. Do you see that? Now how does James know that? Does he know it because he's heard the testimony of Peter and Barnabas and Paul, well, he has heard that, but James says, here's how I know it. He says, I know it because in verse 15, it's in the prophets. 
James says, the reason I know that God is doing this now is because this is consistent with God's word. And then James quotes this passage from Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. And he quotes the Greek translation of Amos 9. And he says, verse 16, this is from Amos. After this, I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That's a reference to the rebuilding of the broken temple. I will restore David's fallen tent. Verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who bear my name. Well, who are the Gentiles that bear the name of Yahweh? Well, in the first century, that would have, that would have been a foreign concept, and yet that's what God said to Moses, I mean to Amos centuries before. So there are really two things here in this statement from James. James says two things. One, that God has answered the brokenness of David's fallen tent. Now that becomes a, a theological, eschatological conversation among Christian theologians because just a few years after this, the temple's going to be destroyed and never to be rebuilt. Here we are all these years later in the temple, the physical temple has not been rebuilt. So theologians from a Christian perspective have taken the teachings of Jesus when Jesus said, the temple will be destroyed and I will rebuild it in how many days, remember? Three days. So Jesus embodies, if you will, the fulfillment of this very text. Jesus is claiming to fulfill Amos 9 in that statement, that the David's fallen tent will be rebuilt in three days. He's referring to himself now as the fulfillment and the embodiment of Israel. And then James says, not only that, but the rest of mankind, even among the Gentiles, will bear the name of the Lord. The very nature of the church is what James is talking about. So James says there are two things here that I look at from the scripture that authenticate what I'm hearing with my ears. And that is that Jesus has answered this prophecy and now the Gentiles are becoming a part of it. And this new community includes all of us. So prophecy, scripture, James points to it. It's authenticated by experience. Peter and Paul give authenticity to it. So it's both the scripture and it's experience. James listens to the experience and points the people to the Bible, to the Old Testament and says, here it is right in front of us. We've just gotta be paying attention. So the message of the gospel is central to the people of God. Well, who are the people of God? The people of God are this new community this new community who now live in this age to come. The temple was tied to the present age. The new temple, the resurrected Christ, and the church, the new community, the new people of God, we have been outfitted now for the age to come. And the message is not just for Jews, not just going to be a reform movement among Judaism. This is a message for the whole world so that God's glory can fill the earth like the prophets said. So what a, what a pivotal moment in history, y'all. I mean, you're talking about a business meeting of import. <clears throat> I don't know who was keeping the minutes, but I'm glad that Luke was inspired by the Spirit and the eyewitnesses shared with him what happened and this decision, this decision, verse 19, James says, we're not gonna make it difficult for them because they belong to us now. We're, we're in the same community. We're, we're not gonna put the shackle of Judaism on their necks. That's not the age to come. 
We're now living in a, a new day. He says, now we're gonna ask them to consider some things because of our need for fellowship. There are some things that were repugnant to Jews in the pagan world. And so they said, if you'll consider these fellowship considerations, not requirements for salvation, they basically come from Leviticus 17 and 18. And they have to do with just a general understanding of, of what Israel saw as, as repugnant, like blood and, and animals that had been strangled, those kinds of things that the, the, the Jews just, just could not hardly tolerate. They said, if you could just, you could just for fellowship needs, if you could consider those things, but the point is, the gospel is about Jesus and Jesus alone and the church now, the church now is this new community of faith and it includes everybody, Jew and Gentile. What a remarkable, long-lasting decision. And so now here we are today, all these years later, and guess what? We are the new community of faith and it includes everybody and everybody's welcome. And the path in is not through your works, it's not through your accomplishments, it's not through your rigorous religious commitment. The only path in is Jesus. That's why Jesus could say that he was the only way to the Father. And so we have found our way into this new community. Praise his name. Now how was it received? So they decided to write a letter. And they said, let's send this letter and y'all take it to the churches. So people like Paul and Barnabas and others were given the responsibility of taking this and communicating it to the church as well. The, think about how it was received. The gospel, the power of God that strengthens the church and unifies us around our mission. That's what the gospel does. So if you just keep reading here, we won't take the time to read it all, but in, in Acts 15 verse 30, they went to Antioch. In verse 31, it says the people read the letter and they were glad for its encouraging message. Now, you know Paul and Barnabas will separate and go their different ways, but Paul will take this letter to, uh, they will take a message, if you will, from to Syria and Cilicia. And if you look at verse 30, 41, it says he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then if you look at Acts 16, Verse four, they travel from town to town. They deliver the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey and the churches were strengthened in the faith and they grew daily in their numbers. In other words, this decision that the gospel is only about Jesus was received by the churches, the churches were strengthened and they grew in number. That's because the gospel is the central message of the church and when the church proclaims it faithfully, Churches are strengthened and they grow. Now the temptation for churches is, is to get off track and lose their understanding of their central reason for existence. You see, sometimes churches think that, that their principal responsibility is to just be a moral conscience or to be cultural warriors or to somehow think that, that they've got to take over a society. You know, churches, when, when the power of God is evident, um, evident among us, the sure sign is that church is centered on the gospel and the gospel is transforming people's lives. That's what strengthens the church. If the church ever loses its central message and the church decides it is something else besides a place where the gospel is proclaimed and lived out and the people of God are challenged and transformed by the power of God through Jesus, then there really is no hope for the society. Because we have a central message 
And that is the message of the gospel. And it will strengthen the church and it will expand and grow the kingdom of God. So this, this meeting, when they made this decision, it really is a pivotal historical meeting. So let me read you one other thing from John Stott. He says this about this meeting. He says, indeed, we ourselves, from our later perspective of church history, can see the crucial importance of this first ecumenical council held in Jerusalem. Its unanimous decision liberated the gospel from its Jewish swaddling clothes into being God's message for all humankind and gave the Jewish Gentile church a self-conscious identity as the reconciled people of God, the one body of Christ. I say to that, amen and amen. That's who we are, the reconciled people of God, and we are the body of Christ. And as long as we keep the gospel at the center of our churches, that will unify us around our mission, and it will strengthen us as the people of God. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you today, Lord. We thank you for the gospel and the fact that it is good news and that you have graced us with it and it's transformed our lives. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness, as your word says, and we are now delivered into the kingdom of light. We have moved from death into life. We've been forgiven and cleansed. We've been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus all because of your grace and the good news of the gospel. Help us to never stray from that message. May it be at the very heart and the center of our church and churches across the body of Christ. Help us to not lose our way, but to recognize that this is the hope for humanity, the message of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for guiding these decisions at this council in Jerusalem, which seems so far removed from us such a different cultural context. We don't usually talk much about Jews and Gentiles unless we're at church. But, but really at the heart of all this was the message about the community of faith, your people, and who they were to be and how they were be, to be brought into being and brought together and the mission to which we've all been called to take this gospel to the world. So we thank you for it. We pray your blessings on us as we seek to live that out in our day. May you find us to be faithful as the people of God in this place with the gospel at the very heart of who we are as a church. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.